Hey, welcome. It is uh, 11.07. Dave Rowland is going to be with us, and uh, we've got some interesting cases that we're going to talk about, uh, including uh, bikini-clad baristas. Yeah, there, there, there was a problem. Bikini-clad baristas. Uh, but uh, I wanted to play this ad. It's uh, Ammon Bundy. Uh, you may remember him uh, having some problems with the federal government, uh, and he is running for governor in Idaho. I don't know if he's going to win or not, but I love the ad. Idaho liberals say that if I'm elected as governor, they will leave the state. Well, I'm here to tell you that when I'm elected governor, Idaho will help pay for their moving costs. He's actually standing in front of a U-Haul truck. After all, it's cheaper than keeping him here. Idaho spends nearly 40% of our annual budget on welfare programs. That's almost $4 billion of your tax dollars going up in the smoke every year. As governor, we will be getting rid of property tax, income tax, and your grocery tax. And balancing the budget by ending our billion-dollar welfare state. Idaho isn't California. And if liberals have a problem with that, then we'll help them move there. After all, the moving costs will be only a fraction of the price to keep them here. No one is saying you have to leave. But if you're going to stay here then you have to work like the rest of us. I don't know about you, but just the thought of, a, of somebody actually working to get rid of uh, all those taxes, <laughs> I just find that really, really uh, attractive. I mean, that, that's we could do that in Missouri. You know, the Republicans say they're the party of small government. They're the, the party that wants to reduce taxes and cut spending. Uh, they don't like redistribution of wealth. Then why aren't you doing that in Missouri? Why aren't you getting rid of the income tax? Why are you giving out special breaks to different companies so that you're picking winners and losers? Why aren't you all getting together and getting rid of the personal property tax? Why are you not doing these things? Why don't you legislatively... Just get rid of the anti-marijuana laws. Just legalize it. Decriminalize it. Get the government out of it. Don't give me this uh, Prop 3 issue for the Constitution for the state of Missouri for marijuana. It's just a weed. People want to smoke it. It's none of your damn business. You know, it, it, and you wonder why I get so disappointed with, with the Republicans. Because here they control the state. They control the House, the Senate, and the governor's mansion. They could, they could accomplish these things, but they don't. And it's frustrating. If you really believe in limited government, start limiting it. Start giving us back our freedom. Quit taking as much of our pay. And, I, and what the Republicans don't seem to understand is that if they accomplish this, if they do this, the state of Missouri will be the place everybody wants to go. They'll, this will be the state where people go uh, when they want to start a new business or relocate a business out of, say, New York or California. Just... Start doing 
what your platform suggests you do. But you're always playing games. Republicans just always play games. And it's irritating and it's frustrating and you got to weed through it. You know, and I'm not condemning all Republicans, but you know, if if you control the entire state legislature, you can make this stuff happen if you're principled. But you guys don't. Uh, let's see, Gary. Chris Bank of St. Peter's was found guilty in municipal court by a judge on two zoning laws, uh, fined four hundred dollars uh, each. Yeah, we were talking about this. He had the fence and he had the flowers. Uh, he filed a trial de novo uh, to appeal the circuit court for a new trial. It was found not guilty by a twelve count uh, by a twelve county citizen jury on the peace disturbance charge alleged by the city clerk. The jury foreman spoke on behalf of the jury and admonished the city that they violated, discriminated uh, federal, state, and civil rights. Uh, stated that I shouldn't, what? I shouldn't sue in federal court for my liberty. Cost, Chris Bank was, okay, uh, I'm going to have to get more details on that. Anyway, my disappointment after, because uh, I'd never thought about all the strings that are attached to all the money that the federal government sends to the state. Because they send money to the state for highways and education and health care and everything else. And every time they send a check, it's not just here's a check. It's here's a check if you could pull these strings, if you do what we tell you. And that limits what the uh, state does. And I think Ron Calzone, uh, uh, you know, st was standing on principle and saying we shouldn't take that money. And I think Calzone is right. It's just a difficult choice to make uh, when they're holding that out in front of you. Uh, you know, here's billions of dollars for your people. And, of course, this is how, as I've pointed out in the past, Democrats get elected. They bribe voters. You, uh, you vote for us and we'll give you all of these things. And, you know, a lot of uh, big-hearted independents, along with a lot of big-hearted Democrats, think they're helping the poor. You know, they, they envision themselves in the situation where they don't have a job, no place to sleep, everything has fallen apart in their life, and... They'd want to make sure there was some kind of a safety net out there. What they don't understand is there has always been a safety net out there for people who fall into that position. It was called private charity. We still engage in it. We do it more here than any place else in the world. We don't need the government to take our money, bribe us with our money, and, and, and come back and, uh, and make these promises. Democrats need to wake up and understand as do a lot of independents and perhaps a lot of Republicans, that there should be no social safety net. It should all be done through charity. No other country will you find the kind of philanthropy you find here. We donate more than any other country. We are the most philanthropic. We don't need welfare. We don't need you to borrow money to pay for these programs We'd rather do it ourselves. And who could argue that the federal government is inefficient in the way they spend their money? Private charities wouldn't be. All right, uh, I'm up against the clock. Dave Rowland is coming up. Got a lot of stories that uh, 
I think are interesting, including this uh, bikini barista deal. Um, if you like your coffee hot and uh, your barista's hotter, I guess uh, this is good news. We'll kick that around next. On the Gary Nolan Show, the Zimmer Radio Network. It is uh, 11-18. Glad to have you with us. Glad to be with you. Don't forget, tomorrow is Frost Your Buns Friday. Uh, we kick off this segment of the program with Dave Rowland. Uh, and uh, he is the attorney that loves to sue the government to protect your freedom. Uh, Dave, before we get into some of the topics that you wanted to talk about, there is a guy in St. Peter's, Missouri, who apparently had too many sunflowers in his front yard. And uh, he got fined for that. Uh, and he also had a, a fence or something on, on his front yard, and they didn't like that. The city didn't like that either. And I was, is that the same city where that woman who was allergic to grass, artificial turf, and got in trouble? It's not just the same city. They're trying to enforce the same unconstitutional ordinance. So, uh, of course, we fought the, uh, the turf grass case for five years, and ultimately, uh, the federal court dismissed us without ever reaching the constitutional question. So I've been in touch with Mr. Bank, the uh, property owner in St. Char- Peter's, uh, who's got the sunflowers. Uh, he did ask for what's called a trial de novo. In other words, the initial assessment against him was in municipal court. But if you lose in municipal court, you have the opportunity to take it up into the regular circuit court and basically get a redo on the trial. So uh, he has asked for that. We are confirming uh, whether that has been set for a trial date yet. But it is the Freedom Center's intention to represent Mr. Bank um, in this challenge because effectively what the city is saying is if you have literally anything at all in your front yard other than turf grass, you're in violation of the law. Now, do they actually apply it this way to all of the city's citizens? No. No. What they do is they pick out the people who are doing something a little bit different and they decide they're going to enforce this ordinance against them, even though they're not enforcing it against uh, all these other folks who may have flowers uh, in part of their yard. They might have uh, trees in their yard that that reduce the amount of grass coverage. Uh, but they're leaving all of those folks alone and just picking on Mr. Bank because he chose sunflowers instead of trees or bushes or um, ordinary flower beds. So, um, so yeah, we are we are planning to re-engage the fight with St. Peter's over this totally unconstitutional ordinance. Is this the path you guys went down the last time, or not? It is slightly different. So, um, I will say the facts in our Duffner case were absolutely fantastic. I mean, you know, again, we had um, a, a septuagenarian breast cancer survivor with horrible grass allergies who had gotten rid of all the grass in her yard. That was about as fantastic a set of facts as you could ask for. Um, with this, it's not that he objects to planting grass at all. It's that he'd like to have some flowers in there too. And he keeps his grass meticulously maintained. He actually uses scissors to get down and trim the grass right next to the stalks of his sunflowers to make sure that the grass stays uh, under control and within 
ordinance limits. Um, so the, the real issue here is not the question of how well the grass is maintained. In other words, it's not a question of the yard being overgrown. It's simply the fact that he has something, anything other than turf grass in his front yard. And again, the city gives a pass to all kinds of people who have trees or bushes or other kinds of things in their front yard, but they have, uh, because of the neighbor's complaints, they've decided to focus in on uh, on this one resident because he wanted to have some sunflowers as well. Uh, and it's important to point out, there's absolutely nothing unlawful about the sunflowers. Uh, in some cases, Cities have said, well, we think sunflowers are weeds, therefore we can tell you you're not allowed to grow sunflowers in your yard. That is not the case here. They are not saying the sunflowers are weeds. They are not saying you can't have sunflowers. They're saying you can't have them in your front yard. Um, so it's purely a question of aesthetics as opposed to any question of the public health and safety. You know, you'd think that the city would, uh, the residents of the city would, would stand up and say, all right, that's enough of this Bravo Sierra. We're going to get this taken care of. And, and uh, you know, write a law or, or delete the law or change the law to stop this. You know, I would like to think that, Gary. The problem is, is the city has not only not fixed the law, they have doubled down. So the ordinance we are fighting against now is even worse than the one that we fought, fought against several years ago. Because several years ago, there was no requirement about where you had to have, what, where the 50% of your yard that was turf grass had to be located. Um, they have now amended the ordinance to make clear, not only do you have to have 50% coverage in turf grass, you have to start with the entire front yard. So, so they're not just dictating what plants you can have in your yard. They're telling you where you have to put them, removing that element of choice from the property owners. Uh, it is absolutely ridiculous, and the citizens of St. Peter's should not stand for it, but in fact they have been. And uh, when that happens, that means you're likely to get sued. Unbelievable. All right, uh, let's move along. Uh, and and I, I will want to know uh, updated. Uh, I want to be updated on that case as you uh, carry that forward. Uh, if you like your uh, coffee hot and your barista hotter, uh, good news apparently in Washington State. Yes. Yeah, so this is a really interesting issue. Uh, so about a decade ago, some innovative entrepreneurs in Washington State got the idea of people would be more likely to buy coffee if uh, there were scantily clad females selling the coffee. And so these little barista coffee, uh, bikini barista coffee shops started popping up across Washington state. And uh, they were successful. Um, a lot of consumers did like going to these shops, but some of the city officials did not like them very much. And so they started passing ordinances saying, you can't do that here. In particular, the city of Everett, Washington, passed an ordinance that uh, basically creates a dress code for people who are selling coffee. They said that uh, you have to cover minimum body areas, and they defined it as the upper and lower body, breast, pectorals, stomach, back below the shoulder blades, buttocks, top three inches of legs below the buttocks, 
and genitals. So these areas that have to be covered uh, by your clothing. Well, they got sued and a couple of years ago, the Ninth Circuit largely upheld the dress code. They said it doesn't violate the First Amendment. It doesn't violate some other elements of the Constitution, but we're not really sure about the equal protection argument that the baristas have raised. Let's send it back down to the district court for a ruling on the equal protection element. Well, that ruling came uh, a couple of weeks ago and the judge said, you know what? Really what this boils down to is the cities are trying to tell women how they have to dress. These same standards wouldn't necessarily apply to men who are in similar circumstances, they're focused on controlling women's dress and and their bodies. And that violates the equal protection clause is what this district court judge held. And so now he has struck down the dress code uh, for Everett Washington. The question is, will the Ninth Circuit agree? Because it's almost certain that they've been fighting this for years now. It's almost certain it's going to go back up to the to the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals. And I'm not 100% certain that the Ninth Circuit is going to agree. It depends largely on the panel that they get. So there are some more conservative judges on the Ninth Circuit that I think will say, no, this isn't actually targeting women's bodies in any in any inappropriate way. Um, This statute is constitutional. And then you've got some left leaning judges who are more likely to say, yes, this is absolutely targeting women's bodies. uh, Therefore, it is unconstitutional. And I don't know what the draw on that panel is going to be, so I can't make any prediction about how it's going to turn out. But, uh, but it's a really interesting argument that they've brought to bear here because normally we would think about this as a First Amendment case. Uh, the, the U.S. Supreme Court has repeatedly upheld nude dancing as First Amendment-protected activity. And so when you're talking about people who would like to perform a service in a state of relative undress, you would think, well, let's look at the new dancing cases. The reason the Ninth Amendment didn't go that way is they said, well, but these people aren't dancing. Like, the dancing was the communicative element um, in, in the other cases, and because that's not present here, that's why the First Amendment doesn't apply. Very, very interesting distinction they were drawing there. Couldn't the city unplug the whole thing just by saying, okay, men, same dress code? Um, arguably, yes. Arguably, yes. Um, I don't know if the judge that ruled on this case would buy it. He, he kind of anticipated that. And he said, look, really, it's clear from the evidence that what they are doing is targeting women who are doing these jobs. Um, and, and he kind of said it, you know, even if you had, um, similar requirements being applied to men, uh, the fact of the matter is that this is a targeted ordinance, whether or not it could be generally applied, it's not being generally applied. Um, that's what I think actually makes this a much more difficult case. It'd be, it'd be harder if, uh, the law itself expressly said it only applied to women. That or they have to start dancing while they're making your coffee. Coming that's, that's up. That's the other option. Uh, the IRS and churches. This, I think, goes back to Lyndon Johnson, really. Uh, anyway, we'll, we'll get that next.
on the Gary Nolan Show. This is the Gary Nolan Show. Dave Roland, MoFreedom.org. I might add slash donate because you may call him one day and ask him for help. Uh, there is a, um, th- this, this is, I think, good news myself. A split decision in the Ninth Circuit dealing with uh, the uh, a be- with a beauty pageant. Explain. Yeah, so um, one of the big issues in the beauty pageant world these days is whether the pageants are able to limit their participants to naturally born females. Um, there have been a number of transgender uh, individuals who have attempted to enter uh, traditionally uh, pageants that are traditionally limited to naturally born females. And when they were told they were not allowed to enter, they filed a lawsuit and said, well, this is discrimination. So um, the case in particular um, came out of uh, Oregon and the would be participant called up the leader of the pageant and was asking for some of the details about how they could participate. And the conversation was going swimmingly until the would be participant volunteered the fact that they were transgender. And at that point, the pageant organizer said, Oh, well, no, our, our pageant is only open to naturally born females. And, uh, the would be participant said, we will see you in court. So, it's one of those situations where it, it appears that the would-be participant already knew about this limitation um, and maybe was only seeking to apply for this pageant because they wanted to be able to bring a lawsuit. Um, we've seen this kind of thing happen with uh, people that sue cake bakers or website designers uh, for discriminating. Basically, it's not that they don't have other options. It's that they want to make a point, And so they go to the people that they know are going to refuse uh, them service or know that they're going to refuse them participation. So that's how this case got started. And the Ninth Circuit looked at this, and it's a split decision. And the two judges in the majority said, well, look, this is a case about the pageant's ability to express its own ideas about femininity and the ideal of womanhood. And if this pageant wants to take the position that ideal of womanhood can only be embodied by those who were born female, then they're allowed to express that message and the government has to overcome strict scrutiny if it's going to deny them the ability to express that message. Uh, Now, a really interesting aspect of this is there have been uh, a number of of opinions that the U.S. Supreme Court has issued that resolve this on freedom of association grounds. So, for example, uh, when some members of the gay community wanted to march in uh, a St. Patrick's Day parade. They were told they were not allowed to do so by the organizers. And they said, hey, look, you're discriminating against us. And the U.S. Supreme Court said, well, look, this is a freedom of association issue. If the organizers of the parade don't choose to associate with people who are gay, that's their choice. So the... uh, 
the plaintiffs, or rather the defendants in this beauty pageant case could have leaned heavily on that precedent, they chose not to. They said, instead of focusing on freedom of association, we want to focus on the freedom of expression. And the majority opinion kind of reveals why. Because there have been a number of cases that have said that the freedom of association argument does not hold up in the face of uh, state anti-discrimination laws. So if you've got what they call a human rights law uh, that that prohibits discrimination of various types, um, some courts have said that the state's interest in ending discrimination overcomes any First Amendment protections uh, that might be provided for the freedom of association. That does not necessarily hold if you're talking about the freedom of expression. And so that's why this majority focused on the freedom of expression as the basis for upholding the pageant's ability to exclude uh, non-biological females from their pageant. I do think this is probably headed for en banc review. We see this a lot in the Ninth Circuit now, don't we? Uh, because in the Trump administration, we saw a lot of conservative judges added to the Ninth Circuit, which historically has been the most liberal of um, the circuit courts. And, and so when you have a controversial decision like this, where you've got a split between conservatives and liberals, very frequently you will see en banc review um, granted so that the liberal majority on the Ninth Circuit can reconsider the decision and frequently overturn the decision of the three-judge panel. You know, it, it just baffles me th that even a progressive would say, yeah, you're a guy and you've got this mental problem, and it is technically it is a, a mental problem. A dysmorphic body dysmorphic problem uh but uh, but we we're gonna force you on them I, it just i don't know it just well, well, it makes Gary, me crazy. one of the things that i find most interesting about this situation though is it sounded like the pageant was going to let this person compete it's until the person went out of their way to say oh by the way i don't meet your qualifications and so I think it would have been a much more interesting case, perhaps, if the person had not gone out of their way to reveal this and then had just gone ahead and competed and then later revealed, oh, yeah, by the way, I'm transgender. Um, but because, yeah, again, I think it kind of undercuts a little bit the, the strength of the argument that this person could have brought to bear, um, you know, by, by basically shooting their own argument in the foot, you know, saying, even though you were going to let me compete before you knew that I was transgender, um, I went out of my way to make sure that you were not going to let me compete. You know, <laughs> don't take me just on face value is basically what the plaintiff was saying here, when in fact I think that the other way around would have been a much stronger argument. Because what if they had competed and won? I think that would have been a much um, stronger argument for the transgender community. See, look, we, you know, uh, we can perfectly match the values that this pageant has, except for the fact that you know, this person happens to have been born a biological male. You know, that could actively call into question the assumptions that the pageant had made if that had happened. 
But they didn't do that. Even still, the pageant should have the right to say, this is who gets in. Oh, no, I agree. I absolutely agree, Gary. Uh, I'm just, you know, you, you get tired of hearing these people foisting themselves off on society and forcing them uh, to accept it. Well, I don't have to. Um, I may be wrong. In that case, the marketplace will punish me, but I should have that right. Uh, all right, so you went to a conference. This is a, this is a kind of fascinating. I don't want to get cut short on this. Uh, maybe I'll, I'll uh, take a commercial break and come back and talk about the gun rights uh, thing, because I know that states all across the country are trying their best to find a way around this uh, Gruen decision. And it's a uh, Bruin, I'm sorry, Bruin decision. And it's really been uh, a, a challenge for those states. And you apparently went uh, to a conference where they talked about this. I'm dying to find out. So quick break. Back with Dave Rowland. It's 1149. Dave Rowland is with us. MoFreedom.org. Uh, he loves to sue the government to protect your freedom. He was at a conference last week and heard from some of the top attorneys in the country on the topic of how courts are attempting to deal with the pro-Second Amendment decision in New York Rifle and Pistol uh, v. Bruin. Um, d d some of these uh, states are going out of their way to try and find ways around it, and not very successfully. How are the judges handling it? Dave, welcome back. <laughs> well, the, the answer to the question of how are they handling it is they're pulling their hair out, Gary. Um, so the, the conference I was at, twice a year I go to the Heritage Foundation's Legal Strategy Forum where they pull together uh, the leaders of conservative and libertarian litigation groups from all over the country. And we talk about um, some of these important issues that, that we're dealing with in the courts. And at this last one, we talked about um, the way courts are responding to, to Bruin. And the challenge that the courts are having is that the majority opinion in this case said, if there is going to be a restriction on someone's right to keep and bear arms, the government has the burden of showing that at the time of the founding era or at the time of the ratification of the 14th Amendment, there are historical precedents for the kinds of restrictions that the government is trying to impose. Well, the fact of the matter is, there are not a lot of, of historical precedents for these modern-day restrictions on firearms um, because people didn't even imagine that you could impose these kinds of restrictions uh, back when the country was being founded. So, for example, um, the requirement to have serial numbers on firearms um, – that was not in any way a requirement in 1791 when the Bill of Rights was ratified. Um, no one had that kind of a requirement at that time. Uh, the idea of background checks. Nobody had uh, a background check requirement before somebody could possess a firearm in 1791. And so you've got challenges being filed all over the country against these firearm regulations. And you have a set of judges that desperately want to be able to uphold the regulations, but the reasoning of Bruin doesn't allow it to happen. And so um, the article that I sent to you points out this judge down in Mississippi who complains that really understanding historical notions of, of 
firearm regulation requires like trained historians. Uh, essentially, this judge is arguing that judges aren't equipped to do this, and he specifically points to the Supreme Court, and he says, look, you're not historians. You don't get to tell us um, you know, what people in 1791 uh, thought the law was. But in fact, I think that that judge is way off base. Um, that's what judges do all the time is they look at what the laws were in the past, how laws were interpreted in the past, and they decide the extent to which, if any, those past interpretations of the laws should affect the way that they are interpreted and applied today. Uh, but what this, what this federal judge in Mississippi has done is he has called for the appointment of a historian to assist him in understanding um, what the state of the law was in 1791. By itself, I actually don't think that this is a terrible idea. I mean, I think that courts do benefit from having the insight of historians. Of historians. That's why historians frequently file briefs um, in cases of significant um, constitutional import. But at the same time, to say that the judge is not able to do his job without the input of a historian actually kind of disregards what Bruin held. Bruin said it is the government's job to justify its restriction. And what the judge here is trying to do is basically give the government a helping hand. Instead of forcing the government to do its job by itself, he's saying, here, I'm going to provide you someone that maybe is going to give you a leg to stand on. And I think that that is inappropriate. It's one thing if historians want to file their own briefs in support of the government's position. It is entirely something different if the government, or rather, if the, the judge is saying, here, let's give the government a helping hand. You see what I'm saying there? Yeah, but I also find it difficult to believe that in that a historian would be able to look back uh, at uh, at gun laws a couple of hundred years ago and find any. <laughs> well, I, there there were some. It's just that some of the or many of the ones that were on the books were um, <laughs> expressly discriminatory on the basis of religion and or race. So one of the things we know is that historically, going back into English law, um, there were laws that required firearm ownership by all Protestants and forbade firearm ownership by Catholics. Similarly, uh, in the antebellum American South, there were laws that put severe restrictions on when African Americans could possess firearms. Those restrictions did not apply to white Americans. Um, and so it's almost as though by forcing government attorneys to confront the historical record, they would be put in the position of arguing in favor of bigoted laws, discriminatory laws. Um, and that's certainly a position they don't want to be in. And quite frankly, those laws should be discounted because they were so uh, uh, just so conspicuously discriminatory against relig uh, against minorities, both of religious and of racial persuasions. Well, they're going to have to keep fighting that. And I think there are going to be a lot of challenges to uh, state and local laws uh, until there, eventually. There yeah, until eventually, I think permits uh, become a thing of the past. Um, and as I always admonish people, 
Just because you can carry without a permit doesn't mean you shouldn't know the law. Take the classes, because you don't know what you don't know. Uh, let's see, what do we got? A couple of minutes left. Uh, as you predicted, uh, the Freedom Center uh, got involved in an election transparency case in Greene County, and, well, it made a difference. Well, yeah, so Shane Scholler, the Greene County clerk, sued a, uh, a woman who asked for certain public records, and he did a really unusual thing. He tried to, to get the court to order her to pay for their costs and legal fees, uh, even though they're the ones who filed the lawsuit. Um, when we got involved, the very first thing we did is we pointed to several other cases that uh, I litigated that firmly establish if the government files a lawsuit against a citizen in a Sunshine Law case, the government has to foot the entire bill. You cannot put any part of that bill off on the citizen that the government sued. And uh, basically, as soon as they saw my my arguments in that regard, uh, the attorney for the, the county clerk called me up and he was like, yeah, we, we overlooked that and you're right and we're going to drop this from our case uh, as quickly as we can. So uh, they filed a motion with the court last week to, uh, to remove that element of their of their claim so that's good news for everybody yeah it's kind of impressive <laughs> dave roland if if you got a case in uh, dave roland show it's like the 60 minutes news team showing up at your front door uh, well you, it, it also helped that i was able to cite roland versus st louis city board of election commissioners uh where we got a unanimous supreme court decision saying exactly uh, the, the point that I was trying to make. It's, it's always fun when you get to cite a case where you were the plaintiff. Yeah, indeed. Uh, we're not going to have time to talk about the diversity case, uh, although I do love Justice Thomas and his quote uh, that he doesn't know uh, what is it? He didn't know what uh, the definition. He wasn't sure what diversity meant. Diversity Let's meant. talk about this next week. It's important. I think so. Sounds good, but we just, we ran out of time. MoFreedom.org, and then slash donate, because if he represents you in your case against the state, he doesn't charge you, uh, and you do want him to be successful at holding the state accountable. Dave Rowland, thank you for being on board today. Thank you, Gary. On a Think Tank Thursday. Tomorrow, of course, is Frost Your Buns Friday. But you'll get more political news and current events coming up today because Glenn Beck is on his way in, Sean Hannity after that, and then Randy Tobler. Got to listen to Randy, live and local. Tomorrow morning, wake up Columbia. Well, wake up. See, I always do that. I'm so used to saying that. Brandon Rather, tomorrow morning. Got to run. Whatever it is in life you want, go out and get it. Don't wait for the government to drop it in your lap. You make it happen. Seize the day. Carpe diem. Gwen, baby. I am coming home.